Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer? A beach bum summer? Or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door. In as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. Fill her up. You're listening to the Gas Digital Network. Welcome to another riveting episode of Without a Country. I'm Corinne Fisher. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Okay. Everything's okay. Everything's just wonderful. And I mean, you know, I mean that. I'm I'm great. I seem even keeled. It's going to be amazing. Sorry if you're watching the stream that this is starting late. Uh, I spent the past, I don't know, at this point, it's like going on 72 hours with, um, well, first of all, 48 hours with no heat because my neighbors are renovating um, and the renovators did something that knocked into my pipe and the heat was off. And I thought I was just losing my mind. Um, and then I realized that the heat was off in my apartment. So I was living in, you know, like a what I would call like a garage or, or a barn um, for the past uh, two days. More like a, you know, like a sunroom. Because I do have a door on the back of my apartment because there I have a backyard. So it's a lot of glass. A lot of glass on the, on the, is the situation. Um, and then... Uh, also, uh, a window crept open, probably from the nonstop banging. Um, oh, God, my dog's out there just barking at people. Hilarious. Alfred's in the studio today. Uh, he's sitting in. Uh, this, it, it, you know what? I got to be honest, guys. This business has gotten too incestuous for me. There's just there, the, the levels that I'm dealing with behind the scenes right now is is it's too much for me. And I'm. Every week become more and more um, mentally ill, which, you know, maybe that will be my key to a Netflix special finally, because um, I think things had been going too well for the first perhaps, you know, 15, 16 years of my life. And don't worry, it's gone drastically downhill since then. 
Um, Do you but, want to trade sides so you can look at the wall instead of the booth? No, you, no, I have to look at you and Natalie. It's just it, listen. There's no problem with anyone I'm looking at. It's just. There's a lot going on, okay? I just want to explain to the listeners there's a lot behind the scenes, you know? It's like watch, it's like, it's like a looking through the window on Christmas at a family you used to have. <laughs> it's a, with the dog here, it's a little much. Um, and I was not- Blind Mike's our tiny Tim. And I was not, oh my God, that's hilarious. And I was just not, I was not mentally prepared for the cast of characters that we have in studio today. Anyway, anyway, um, let's see. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, we're renovating. I'm, I truly am. I, I was like, at one point today, I was like going crazy. And then I realized I saw like, a, like the cobwebs that I purposely don't dust because it gives my house a gothic feel. And I'm not making this up. I like leave cobwebs. And I'm actually mad that we had to fuck with the cobweb, cobwebs today because they were really beautiful. I have like a chandelier and some high windows. And I dust other things, but I leave the cobwebs on because... It's just, you know, you can't recreate cobwebs. The co- cobwebs they sell at the 99 cent store for Halloween don't aren't the same as a real cobweb that's been there. Um, and I saw the cobweb swaying in the wind and I realized that uh, it's still freezing in my apartment because a window was open, but it's like 16 feet in the air. So I couldn't get to it. And then I tried to climb a ladder to get to it. And then I couldn't do it. So I called Mike because he's the only man I know um, who can do like construction stuff. Well, Shane used to do stuff for me too. Um, and then uh, Mike climbed the ladder. Yeah, and, he did. And <laughs> Mike climbed the ladder and then at the top of the ladder proclaimed that his jeans were too tight, which I mean, is just a visual I want to create for the listeners. Um, and then he tried to climb in the windowsill, which is barely big enough for my six and a half foot, uh, 6.5 size, you know, woman's foot. So I don't know how you were intending on getting there. And then we started work. He's like halfway in the windowsill with his, his left leg. And we're like, then we start talking back and forth about how his fiance is pregnant and is going to be like really angry at you and me, I'm sure, if you were to fall off this 12 foot ladder and break your neck. Um, and then there was a lot of framed art that we were afraid was going to go. Uh, and that would be, you know, the second time that Mike takes down art in my apartment. <laughs> There's just a lot going on. And then we decided that Alfred should come to studio today because I guess Mike wanted to make his job even more difficult. I don't know what's going on, but that's so we're just going to this is going to be my quiet space. Part of the reason I like doing this show is because I get trapped in a soundproof room for like 90 minutes to two hours a day. And it's the most peace that I experience in my week. And I honestly like it. I'm always in. I always reach rock bottom by about 3 p.m. Tuesday. And then this is how I release it. I don't know why, but just the way my week is, like the worst the worst day of the week is always Tuesday during the day. Sunday is also terrible, but I've, you know, just started doing dog rescue on su- on Sundays. All right. So my, yeah, my enemy of the state this week is my neighbors who are renovating. I am seriously curious, like if any of you guys- of the state. If any of you guys have lived um, in a, like a co-op, a co-op specifically, but any place where in New York City- where they're renovating and it was it's like a year-long renovation and listen i want them to get their dream home i i really do they're nice people i want them to get their dream home but i, I don't understand how like i don't i don't have another place to go they have another place to go i don't have another place to go this is my pl- only place where i live which is the problem with living amongst the rich because i'm low i'm like low tier 
new money and these people have fucking generational wealth and so they have homes all over their the United States and all over the world and different apartment unions, units. This is all I got. I got one unit and I worked for fucking, you know, 30, you know, four years uh, to get it. Uh, so I have no place else to go. So what do you do when your neighbor is doing a year long renovation Monday through Friday, literally jackhammering? Your walls are shaking. You have to take things down because your glass is going to shatter. Your windows are creeping open. Your heat's going out. Your dog has anxiety. Uh and then, so what? What do you like? What do you do? Because for now, like I like basically try to like sleep through the noise, and then at night I'm like happy. Once it dark hits, I'm happy and I'm sane. But I don't know. So email me, DM me. I don't want to. I'm, I'm not trying to like sue these people, but like it just feels like I shouldn't also be having to pay like a monthly utility fee for my co-op when I this is the space is Monday through Friday, you know, nine to five unlivable anyway that's it i know there are larger problems in the world but it's actually like i'm it's been this has been months now and it it, it broke me it broke me this weekend um and i can kind of sleep through anything because you know when you've lived in new york for 20 years you just have to learn how to do it <clears throat> a monkey doing you know what with a football that made me feel a little bit better all right moving on uh, i was gonna make the, some of the listeners enemy of the state but i decided not to turn half the audience against me i do have to point out though there was a lot of polarizing comments about the casey anthony episode some people loved it some people were ha- hated it it was much like uh the trial itself where people have you know very big opinions about something that they know very little about and myself included i think i uh you know did did more research than the the average person but the thing the the problem is there was a lot of comments about like listen to this or listen to that this gives a fuller scope of the casey anthony case um i was pretty clear i thought with what we were doing last week but i guess there was there is some clarification needed we we are not my favorite murder. We are not last podcast on the left. We're not doing the, the episode wasn't about the Casey Anthony trial. I would have needed like eight months to research that and do something like that. I would have needed field producers. This was, as we talked about for many weeks, it was an episode specifically about the Peacock docuseries. Therefore, I was only allowed to use the documentary, um, information and then articles that were released regarding the specific Peacock docuseries. So you guys are like, oh, this is very one-sided or whatever. Yeah, it's based on the Peacock docuseries. And that's why I also pulled articles that didn't like the Peacock docuseries. And I pulled some, you know, information about possibly what she was paid. But like there seems, this is a current events show. So the current event that was happening was the Peacock docuseries. This is not a true crime show. I'm not researching full cases. There are plenty of other shows that do that amazingly, and that is their area of expertise, and that's not what that this show is, nor has it ever been. So I just want to clarify that there, because there was a lot of comments like that were obviously not understanding that. Again, even though I had talked about it for weeks, and then um, and then also said it at the top of last week's episode. But anyway, uh, so that's that. Um, and then the first article actually is something that goes into. F- information outside of the scope of the Peacock docuseries uh, about the Casey Anthony case. Because uh, again, a lot of you guys um, be like, you're a Casey Anthony apologist. Uh, relax yourself. At the end of the episode, again, if you're hearing anything more than just what you want to hear, I specifically said, I don't know who killed Kaylee, but what I do know is that George Anthony fucked kids. That's what I said to wrap up the episode. So yes, And I stand by that. 
I stand by that. I don't know who who killed Casey uh, Kaylee Anthony, but I, George Anthony fucked kids, and that's I'll put that on a bumper sticker and I'll drive around town with that. Okay, um, so. Our amazing producer over here, Mike, uh, found an article from ABC News in 2009 that he thought was very interesting and kind of uh, backed up my thoughts after watching the docuseries that George Anthony fucked kids. And it's uh, it's from uh, January 23rd, 2009. It says, George Anthony left five-page suicide note, sent suicidal texts to family. George Anthony, grandfather of slain toddler Kaylee Anthony, may have taken his own life today had authorities not located him as quickly as they did, Anthony family lawyer Brad Conway said in a news conference today. Police found Anthony despondent and possibly under the influence of medication and alcohol early this morning in a Daytona Beach, Florida hotel, Conway said. Police also discovered a five-page suicide note in the hotel that Anthony had apparently penned. In a somber 911 call, Conway reported Anthony missing Thursday night and said Anthony has taken several bottles of medication from the house as well as some pictures. One of the pictures was of little Kaylee. Anthony's daughter, 22-year-old Casey Anthony, was charged with Kaylee's murder in October before the toddler's decomposed body was found less than a mile from the Anthony home in December. George Anthony was taken into police custody early this morning and transported to Halifax Medical Center for evaluation under a Florida law called the Baker Act, which allows authorities to hold people without their consent for up to 72 hours pending a psychiatric evaluation. The strain of having his granddaughter murdered and his daughter accused of that murder, quote, pushed Anthony to the brink of might what might have been another tragedy, Conway said at the news conference. Police were able to track Anthony's location through his cell phone. Interesting how they were able to do it this time, but not during the, the uh, murder trial, uh, which he used to send a text message to his family saying he did not want to live anymore. Daytona Beach Police Department spokesman Jimmy Flint told ABC News. Investigators would not comment on the contents of the letter, but Flint told ABC News it did not raise speculation that George Anthony was in any way involved in Kaylee's murder. It's an interesting thing to just add to the article. Uh, Halifax spokeswoman uh, Selena Wang told ABC News that Anthony is in stable condition. While Conway said Anthony was recovering from his ordeal, he emphasized what a strain the past six months since Kaylee went missing has put on the man. He's not okay. He's been through something that's affected his life, his wife's life, his daughter's life and his granddaughter is gone um which is also weird because listen like lots of people kill themselves when their kid dies i don't know the stats on grandparents although i will say i was reading about um suicide uh statistics uh late last night no worries everybody and uh men like in like the like seven seventies, eighties, like that's the that's the highest suicide bracket. Uh, but it, to me, that feels like more like an assisted suicide. Whether or not it's legal in the state, that felt like a you know kind of a Kevorkian like thing. I mean, I'm sorry if you're 85 and you're you know committing suicide. I think you're just you're just tapping out. Like I don't. I mean, I mean, obviously it is suicide, but at that point, I just think just do whatever you want. You know, he's not okay. He's been through something, and then that's not how old George Anthony is. I know that, but uh, he's not okay. He's been through something that's affected his life, his wife's life, his daughter's life, blah, blah, blah. Anthony was reported missing by his family around 11 p.m. Thursday after he failed to show up for a scheduled meeting earlier that day. Daytona Police Chief Mike Chitwood said Anthony was low-key and melancholy when they spoke to Anthony at the motel. Anthony basically said to us, you know, I just need to get away. I need to think things through. 
That's why he was there, Chitwood told WFTV. Think things through is interesting language. Um, police then invoked the Baker Act and took him to the hospital. Anthony went willingly and fully cooperated with police and was not handcuffed on the way to the hospital, Orange County Sheriff's Department spokesman Carlos Padilla said. He was not arrested. He has not committed a crime. Well, not not today, uh, Padilla told ABC News. According to Padilla, George Anthony's most recent actions have had no bearing on his status in the investigation into Kaylee's murder and does not draw suspicion that he was somehow involved. Really? They're really hitting that point home hard, harder than anyone really asked. Um, the pressures and everything may have gotten to him. Padilla said, my heart goes out to him. Okie dokie. Um, <clears throat> since Kaylee's disappearance in June, George Anthony and his wife, Cindy Anthony, have steadfastly maintained Casey's innocence and called her a victim in the case. George's disappearance came just days after gruesome details emerged concerning the discovery of Kaylee's body. Adhesive residue from a heart-shaped sticker uh, was found on the duct tape that covered Kaylee Anthony's mouth when her body was found in December, according to an affidavit released Wednesday by the Orange County, Florida State Attorney's Office. The sticker appeared to have been intentionally placed on the duct tape, according to the affidavit written by Detective Yuri Melik, uh, who we talked about in that documentary. Uh, while the sheet from uh, which while the sheet from which the sticker came from was not found at the scene, according to the affidavit, investigators did locate a small heart shaped sticker similar in size to the residue found on the duct tape in the area where the body was found. Also found at the scene was a small shirt, size 3T, a small pair of white shorts with vertical stripes, size 24 months, and a Winnie the Pooh blanket, which we heard a lot about in the doc. Melek wrote that when authorities arrived at the scene, it looked as though the remains had been put in a cloth laundry bag uh, prior to being placed inside a plastic bag. Oh, that's interesting because I clarify because like they were going back and forth last week. And I was like, I really think that there was a plastic bag because I'm pretty sure that's what they said in the documentary. But there was both. And that's answered here. Uh, the remains were found December 11th, 2008, less than a quarter mile from the home Kaylee shared with her mother and grandparents by utility worker Roy Kronk. Um, and if you want to go to this article, there's a timeline of the case. Um since we're all independent investigators now. Uh, the discovery of the child's body brought closure to a mystery that had dragged on for nearly five months after Casey Anthony, Kaylee's mother, told police on July 15th that her daughter had disappeared a month earlier. The day after she reported the child missing, Casey Anthony was arrested on charges including child neglect. During a bond hearing July 22nd, authorities named Anthony a person of interest in Kaylee's disappearance and said they were treating the case as a potential homicide after discovering evidence of decomposition in the trunk of a car that Casey Anthony had driven. On October 14th, with Kaylee's body still missing, Casey Anthony was officially charged with first-degree murder. By the time Kronk found the child's remains less than half a mile from the Anthony home December 11th, the massive search effort had attracted thousands of volunteers. Authorities, including the FBI, had tracked down hundreds of leads both in the United States and abroad. Eight days later, authorities confirmed through DNA testing that the remains belonged to the missing toddler. It has been the defense's position throughout the search that Anthony handed Kaylee up to a third party in Todd Black's uh, spokesman for Casey Anthony's attorney, uh, Jose Baez, told uh, ABC News after the remains were found in December. Casey Anthony claimed that a woman named Zaneda Fernandez-Gonzalez, Zanny the Nanny, who she claimed was Kaylee's nanny, was the last person to see Kaylee alive after she dropped Kaylee off at her apartment. After an extensive search for Fernandez-Gonzalez, the woman came forward and denied 
Any involvement in the case or any connection to the family, police cleared Fernandez Gonzalez, 37, and the woman filed a defamation lawsuit against Anthony in September, claiming she lost her job and cannot find an apartment because of her inclusion in the investigation. Casey Anthony is currently in jail and charged with murder in the case. So that's interesting just to not only hear about um, George Anthony's, you know, suicide attempt. I would have loved to read that suicide note. Um, And then also to read um, a news article from that time period so there you go that's that yes do you have the suicide note no i wish okay that'd be sick no i mean just collector's item so it's like she did say in the documentary that the zenaida woman was a real person yeah that she did use to purposely throw the police off the scent and it seemed to have ruined this woman's life yeah no 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 i mean that's not cool i mean i you know zenaida obviously should absolutely uh have a defamation case against her i I actually was curious whatever happened with that because she should get a shit ton of money um, but you know, Casey Anthony admitted that she was a huge liar. So, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not a fucking Casey Anthony apologist, as you guys say. I mean, the, the I, I hope the internet burns to the ground, truly. Um, but, uh, but I do think, I just think it's very interesting, especially because, um, a financial sum has not been disclosed, like what she got paid for this Peacock docuseries. Obviously, if it's like a million dollars, then we understand why she did it. Um, but I don't understand why after, you know, a decade of, you know, death threats and, and, and I'm sure an, an abnormal life just deciding to remind us all of this thing, if you really didn't do it, it just seems like a, it, it seems like a bizarre choice to me, um, but that's 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 my that's to me what like leans the most in the direction of like why the fuck would you do this? You you, you just need attention. I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure. Damn, I feel so bad for this Zenaida woman. Yeah. So she lost the defamation lawsuit. Judge threw it out. Interesting. Uh, eight, like eight years later, she was living in a motel where she was uh, she was only like affording the place there by cleaning rooms at the motel. Fuck. And uh, she got caught stealing somebody who lived at the motel's credit card. Okay, well that wasn't a good. She's now in jail. That wasn't a good job, but she's probably so strapped for cash. Thanks to Casey Anthony. Thanks to Casey Anthony. She, but Casey Anthony also doesn't have any money. There was that one point, and like you can't really trust these things um, because like my net worth is also online and, and it's incorrect. But like you, at one point, I was looking up what Casey Anthony's net worth was, and it was like something crazy, like ten thousand dollars, like unliv, like an unlivable uh, like net worth. That's a very good net worth, if you ask me. <laughs> a net worth? Yeah. That's everything you have liquidized. Like that's yeah. what. That's a solid net worth. Ten thousand dollars? That's it? Your the the place you live, your car, everything, I mean, all the I money rent, that you have in the bank. I don't have a car. <laughs> is ten thousand well, I'm but I'm saying this this is diff this is different though. You're talking like apartment and living and uh New York City living. Casey Anthony if Casey Anthony's net worth was ten thousand dollars in Florida at that age, that would be bad. I don't I don't think anyone would describe ten thousand dollars as a good net worth. Hey, I wish I was living that good is all I'm gonna say. I'm, I'm I'm saying it's a manageable net worth, you know. It's certainly I mean, I'm sure I've had a net worth of ten thousand dollars many times, probably lower. I've had a net worth of two hundred dollars, maybe. <laughs> Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers professional counseling done securely online. So if you feel like there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, definitely check out BetterHelp. You know, I'm a big fan of uh, online therapy because why would you add like another place to go or another like time that you have to meet someone uh, to your already busy schedule? That makes no sense to me. It's in a digital age. If we learned anything during COVID, it's that we can do most things online. I guess you need a hug sometimes. 
sometimes, some people more than others. But, you know, you know what's ne- needed for you. And I also don't really I don't know that therapists are legally supposed to be hugging you anyway. I'm not sure. Uh, whatever you're dealing with, BetterHelp has a wide range of counselors available for you. Plus, BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. Financial aid is available and it's easy to get started. Once you sign up, BetterHelp will match you with your own licensed professional therapist who you'll be able to communicate with in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not a self-help um book. It's a professional counseling done securely online and BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so it's easy and free to switch counselors if needed. You can send a message to your counselor at any time and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so it's the perfect way to do therapy during the pandemic and you won't have to go back to sitting in uncomfortable waiting rooms in the future. So what you're going to do if you're interested in becoming a better person, especially with the new year um, swiftly approaching, you're going to go to betterhelp.com slash WAC to join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. New testimonials from users are posted daily. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. So go to betterhelp.com slash WAC. That's better. H-E-L-P dot com slash W-A-C to get 10% off your first month. Once more, that's betterhelp.com slash W-A-C for 10% off your first month. Now back to the news. Um, okay. Let's see. Let's see. Um, is Alfred okay out there? I hear barking. <laughs> yeah, Chris Vega walked in, which is, you know. All right. So his, ta- his taste is still good. Um... <laughs> All right. So big, a lot of big things happening this week uh, in the news. So a lot of things like kind of, kind of wrapping up, which was interesting. Uh, so I'm going to go into the Sam Bankman Freed uh, story now. Um, uh, so Sam Bankman Freed's uh, arrest is the culmination of an epic flame out. This is from Vox. After quickly amassing political and philanthropic influence, the former billionaire has been arrested for fraud. Um, I'm not going to read this whole thing, I don't think. But if you're not familiar with Sam Bankman-Fried, he is the chief executive officer or was of FTX, which is a cryptocurrency exchange that he founded in 2019. Um, I personally have friends who lost a good amount of money in this scheme. So it's interesting. And it just seems like there's been a lot of people, I guess this kind of always happens, but maybe I wasn't interested in finance in like my earlier uh, years as an adult. But there's a lot of people who try these like big level fraud, um, have these big level like fraud attempts. And you know, they're they're doing well for a while, but then shit always hits the fan and they always end up in prison. So I don't know how they think they're going to get away with it unless they don't even care that they don't get away with it. They just want to live like a king for a little while because the the amount of prison time that you can get for this is like we're sometimes it's like worse than murder. <laughs> You're like, Jesus Christ, people are not fucking around with money in the U.S. Um, So as recently as the summer of 2022, Sam Bankman Freed was the boy wonder face of crypto, a 30 year old who founded one of the biggest cryptocurrency exchanges in the world, a celebrated philanthropist worth an estimated 16 billion dollars. Um I'm like, and I'm like, ugh, I would have liked his hair, too. Uh, and a major Democrat. I always look at pictures of criminals and I go, what if he hit on me? Would I have said yes? This one's on the fence because I like the hair, but I love curly brown hair. But the face, I don't think so. Um, 
and a major Democratic donor who quickly found favor in Washington. By early November, he was at the center of an epic flameout that left his empire and his image as an uncannily sharp, altruistic billionaire in ruins. Now Bankman Freed has been arrested in the Bahamas and charged with wire fraud, securities fraud, and money laundering, among other things. He has been denied bail and his extradition hearing isn't set to take place until February 8th. The Securities and Exchange Commission has also separately charged him with defrauding FTX investors. In the annals of crypto disasters, the tale of Bankman Freed may go down as one of the most jaw-dropping. He resigned from his crypto exchange FTX as it collapsed from a domino effect of a surge in customers trying to withdraw their funds, and the company filed for bankruptcy. The Wall Street Journal reported that Bankman Freed may have illegally taken about $10 billion in FTX customers' funds for his trading firm, Alameda Research, whose future is also in peril. And Bankman Freed is now worth clo uh, close to nothing. The downfall of FTX isn't a typical story of crypto's vo uh, vol uh, volatility um, uh, or investor risk taking. It crumbled not due to bad luck, but due to what now appears to be unsustainable layers of deception. Mm, deception. On the surface, FTX appeared to be thriving. In the past year, it made several high-profile uh, acquisitions and bailed out of other uh, bailed out other failing crypto companies. In reality, it was drowning in debt. At least one billion dollars in customer funds is reportedly missing. The stunning contrast between image and reality has resulted in Bankman Freed facing a reputational fall from grace swifter than any in recent memory. And I mean, again, this is like totally shades of Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. Like, I am actually very jealous of these people, how they get this far into such a high, you know, uh, profit arena before people realize that they are a scam. I'm like, I'm honestly like kind of jealous of that attribute because like being in entertainment, I know so many people who are all smoke and mirrors who get so fucking far. And I'm like, I want to do that too. I don't know. Like, I feel like being authentic is both my greatest asset and my greatest weakness. You know, sometimes why can't I just fucking fake it like I'm not a stupid ass cunt bitch? And then I could get so far. Anyway, the Justice Department and uh, SEC began investigating FTX immediately after its collapse. And his friends and admirers in crypto, philanthropic and political circles have quickly begun distancing themselves from the man widely dubbed the king of crypto. Um, a senior Democratic strategist who spoke on condition of anonymity to protect their clients told Vox that politicians who've received donations, and this is the interesting part of this to me, how it's tied to politics. Fuck, I just went to a tweet. Okay. Um, uh, who've received donations from Bankman Freed, who spent around $40 million during the midterm election cycle, are considering returning that money. A few, including Sen Senators Dick Durbin, Democrat from Illinois, and Kirsten Gillibrand, Democrat from New York, have said that they plan to donate Bankman Freed's contributions to charity. What's the charity? I want receipts. On November 10th, Bankman Freed publicly apologized. I fucked up. And also, like, why are you do donating it to fucking charity? Shouldn't you, like, try to get it back to these people who lost all their money? If I invested in crypto and then fucking some senators were like, I'm going to give this money to, a, you know, an animal rescue, I'd be like, uh, let me make that decision for myself. Yeah, but that's not tax deductible. Well, I know obviously it, and also I don't, I, I, I don't 
I don't um, believe that they're actually giving it all back. I think that they're just saying that. And then who's really going to fucking know exactly what happened to the money? You know, especially because I'm sure some of it's already spent. Um, On November 10th, Bankman Freed publicly apologized. Uh, I fucked up and should have done better. He wrote on Twitter. Oh, God, I should have done better means absolutely nothing. I also should have been. Is that what you people want? Is that what you want when someone does something? You want them to write, I... I should have done better. Does that make you, does that get you off? I really don't understand that. Like when people who are angry say do better and then the person who did something bad say, I I should, I, I will do better or I should have done better. Or I fucked up. Like, what does that mean? I fucked up. I like, but like, it's just, it's all, it's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. And, and also like, who the fuck are we? Um, I also should have been communicating uh, more very recently. He pointed to a poor internal labeling of bank-related accounts. Yeah. As one reason why FTX didn't have the liquidity um, to return money to clients. Yeah, it was mislabeling. That's the problem here. Um, in the last year, Bankman Freed had soared to buzzy prominence as a paragon of how the ultra-rich who have seemingly endless wealth might use it for good. He's been the subject of countless profiles. He was on the cover of Fortune's September issue. The media portrayed him as an unassuming, nerdy savant, frequently noting his down-to-earthness. Dude, anytime someone, like a celebrity, um, is described as down-to-earth, I immediately don't trust them. Down-to-earth, salt-to-the-earth, nah. They're tied in, they have a body in their closet. His messy mop of hair, his penchant for wearing T-shirts and shorts, his Toyota Corolla, a real Louis Capaldi here. Investor, I love Louis. Um, investors were enamored of the fact that he wasn't a buttoned-up entrepreneur. He played computer games during pitch meetings. Yeah, that's cool. And like, <laughs> I just invested a million dollars in this startup and he's fucking playing Ninja Fruit, whatever that is. What is that one called? What's the one where you slice up Fruit Ninja, right? Were you slice up fruit? Thank you. Thank you, Natalie. I mean, Corinne, way to hit an app from 2008. I don't play computer games. I think they're a fucking waste of time. I just know when boyfriends are playing them in front of me and not paying attention to me. You you haven't had a boyfriend in that long? I guess not the one that was not paying attention to me. Yeah, I guess not. Um, let's see. Uh, games during pitch and other modern day founders. His eccentricities were taken as proof of his distinct genius. Bankman Freed, meanwhile, came off as a billionaire refreshingly unimpressed by the glitz and pomp of a typical billionaire's lifestyle. The FTX Foundation, uh, Bankman Freed's philanthropic arm, says it has donated over $190 million to date. Disclosure, this August, Bankman Freed's philanthropic family foundation, Building a Stronger Future, awarded Vox's Future Perfect. Uh, Future Perfect, a grant for a 2023 reporting project. That project is now on pause, which is cool. I like I like the laws in America that mean like that if you accepted money from like the person you're writing this fucking article about, like you have to say it. That's cool. That's a cool law. Um, it's hard to spend more than millions a year in an effective way on yourself, even if you wanted to. He told Yahoo Finance earlier this year. I mean, tell the Kardashians that. And I think that's why we see um, super yachts, because a lot of people literally can't figure out anything else to do with their money. Can you imagine? 
Can you imagine having so much money that you literally cannot figure out anything? Like, don't these people have people who help them along the way? Who, who, it always puzzles me. You know, like those TV shows that celebrities will go on where they, they, they have to have a whole camera crew to do something nice for like a teacher who helped them or something. I always find that interesting because I mean, I guess in that case, you're like reaching out to someone, you know, because famous people like, you know, actors and stuff, they don't have a limitless amount of money the way tech billionaires do. It's a completely different amount of money. They have like low millions, which is not sustainable for an entire lifetime, um, you know, at the level that they're living at. So I always find that interesting, uh, you know, that they like go, you know, who they choose to go back and help because it's like, oh, if this person meant so much to you, couldn't you have helped them without the camera crew? But I guess not. I guess, if, you know, you're not, you're not buying all your teachers houses. You're buying like your parents, your siblings, you know, people like that. Um, but like the, just like the concept of saying like, I have so much money, I don't know what to do with it. Like, even if you want to do something nice, but still do it from a fiscally smart standpoint, then just buy all your friends' houses, but you own but you own the property. So like you buy it for them, but your name is on the paperwork. That seems like a good plan if you want to be both a good person and a dirtbag at the same time. I don't know. Anyway, um... But Bankman-Fried seemingly had it all figured out uh, that he had articulated a data and evidence-based plan for how to give away his wealth is, in part, what makes his downfall so stunning. Who is Bankman-Fried if not a political mega donor? Who is he if not a philanthropist and not a billionaire? Who was he all along? Um, Let's see. I'm going to continue reading this because I actually really like this article and it was uh, pretty interesting. Uh, Bankman-Fried went to Wall Street because he wanted to make as much money as possible. That's not especially notable. What set him apart was how effectively and quickly he turned those intentions into a reality. The son of two Stanford professors, he majored in physics at MIT, but then influenced by effective altruism leader and Oxford philosopher Will Mc. Caskill decided to work for a trading firm where he could earn a lot more money a lot quicker, ostensibly with the aim of ultimately giving it away almost as quickly. The effective altruism movement attempts to use evidence and reason to determine the best ways of doing good in the world. When it comes to charitable giving, effective altruists often focus on causes that they view as important, tractable, and neglected areas where a little bit of funding could have an outsized impact. Some effective altruists also believe in earning to give, entering a lucrative field over a poorly paying one so that more money can be given away. If what you're trying to do is donate, you should make as much as you can and give as much as you can, Bankman Freed told Recode in an interview last year. In other words, the ends justify the means. If the math shows that it's magnitudes better to be an investment baker than work at a nonprofit, that's what you ought to do. In recent days, prominent voices in the effective altruism world, including McCaskill and Facebook co-founder Dustin Moskovitz, who is a major funder of the EA-aligned nonprofit Open Philanthropy, have both disavowed that sort of utilitarian calculus. 
Bankman-Fried started his career on Wall Street in 2013 when he was 21. He made his riches through cryptocurrency arbitrage, buying coins for a lower price on one crypto exchange, then quickly selling them for a higher price on a different exchange. He convinced a few fellow effective altruist friends to help in in this arbitrage model and founded his trading firm, Alameda Research. By 2019, it was turning enough profit that Bankman-Fried launched his own crypto exchange, FTX. Part of FTX's draw for investors was that it allowed riskier trades than other exchanges. It allowed people to make highly leveraged bets, at least until 2021, when it reduced the amount of leverage it offered clients. Bankman-Fried was quickly branded as a brilliant disruptor in crypto. That year, at the age of 29, he was worth $22.5 billion. I find these articles about crypto especially interesting, um, not only because you know crypto is you know relatively qu- quite new, um, and I know a lot of people who are new money are getting into crypto very quickly. Um, I myself didn't just because I didn't fully understand it. So I was like, I don't, I, I don't want to invest a lot of money in something I don't understand. That seems like a bad move to me. And I just didn't have the time to like take off from comedy to learn the ins and outs of crypto right now. But it's also been interesting these last several weeks when we hear about so many like odd crypto um, deaths and then, you know, so many scams and schemes. So I just think it's kind of like something important to know about before, I guess, you start investing in crypto. I know a lot of people already have, though. Uh, Though 2022 was an incredibly turbulent year for crypto, Bankman-Fried not only seemed to remain unscathed, he seemed poised to keep the industry from falling apart. He positioned himself as a beacon for other companies. He gave the crypto lender BlockFi, a $250 million line of credit. He bailed out the uh, bankrupt crypto broker Voyager Digital. He also launched his venture fund FTX Ventures this year, which manages about $2 billion in assets. It looked like Bankman-Fried was going to come out of the crypto winter stronger than his competitors, mostly by turning someone else's loss into his opportunity. Bankman-Fried appeared to be settling comfortably onto the throne of influence. In June, he signed the Giving Pledge, joining the ranks of other billionaire mega philanthropists like Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and Mackenzie Scott in a commitment to give away at least 50% of his wealth. A while ago, I became convinced that our duty was to do the most we could do we could for um, the long-run aggregate utility of the world, Bankman-Fried wrote in his pledge letter. In some ways, signing this pledge wasn't was repeating himself. He had already promised to give away 99% of his fortune. In February 2021, he founded the FTX Foundation, which supported causes such as improving animal welfare and fighting global poverty, and funded research and projects that would improve humanity's long-term prospects through the foundation's future fund. On November 10th, in light of FTX's collapse, all the members of the future fund resigned. At just 30 years old, he was making waves in the political world, too. Bankman-Fried was one of the biggest individual donors to Joe Biden in 2020 and the sixth largest individual donor overall for the 2022 midterm cycle, contributing almost $40 million to various candidates and PACs, including a $1 million donation to Beto O'Rourke's failed campaign for Texas governor. One of Bankman-Fried's top aims uh, was getting more political investment in pandemic preparedness. He spent millions backing the congressional run of effective altruist Carrick Flynn, whose platform prioritized pandemic prevention. Flynn lost his primary race. In short, Bankman-Fried has had been pulling a bona fide political 
had been building a bona fide political uh, machine, hiring staff to advise him on his various interests, which included crypto regulation. He was something of a media patron, too, investing in new news site Semaphore and awarding grants to other publications, which I mean this when you get all into this, it's like imagine if one of the most wealthy people in the world who's kind of like a known um, uh, person in political funding, then started a news site. It just seems like there's a lot of issues here where these things do not make for fair news reporting or fairness in politics. Yeah, like, could you imagine if Jeff Bezos bought like a major newspaper? Mm. Yeah, no, I'm, I understand, Michael. I understand. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's I'm kind of kind of what I'm pointing out. There's like just so many uh, when you when you dig even a couple layers deeper into any of this, you go, well, really, what can I trust without a country podcast? But can you? I mean, like we're you know, we're we're giving I think the I think the best part of this show is that like we're giving you a taste of various news sources, which most people aren't doing. I mean, to me, that's what it is. Like, we're going to read something from Fox. We're going to read something from Vox. Most people who read Vox are never looking at Fox, except for to make like a snarky remark about it. You know, they're not actually reading the article and digesting it and thinking like, oh, wow, isn't it, you know, alarming that 50% of the country, if not more, is like reading, using this as their primary news source. And I think that like keeps my mind a lot more open. And also Vox writes crazy things too. I mean, I'm not saying that all that, you know, that they don't. Um, all right. So he was, uh, we're back, to, we're back to, uh, Bankman Freed. Um, he was the key liaison for Congress and the White House on the matter of crypto regulation, even testifying in front of Congress this year. He told the Los Angeles Times in August that he was spending a lot of time talking with members about what constructive things would be, uh, on crypto policies and about what can be done to provide federal oversight of it. Critics and skeptics argue that Bankman Freed's presence in Congress was more about ensuring crypto, uh, would fall under the oversight of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission rather than the SEC because the CFTC is seen as the less powerful of the two. Also going off that, all this talk about like who controls what and who we can trust, it's funny because, you know, I know, I know a lot of people are like, you know, comedians are truth tellers and like, I always listen to what Dave Chappelle says. And listen, I have a ton of respect for Dave uh, Chappelle as a comedian and a colleague and someone who's personally been very kind to me. That being said, I mean, there was a clip, you know, the going... Did did you see that clip that was going around today where he's, you know, high-fiving Elon Musk? Yeah, he brought Elon on stage and got booed for 10 minutes. Right. And so, I mean, like, doesn't, you know, there are certain friendships like that. And again, I'm on record as saying there is a certain level of fame that you reach where I think you are just a different, like, species on the planet. Uh, certainly, like, you're, you're, just, you're just different from the rest of us. And I think Dave Chappelle at this point has reached that level of fame, like you know, how can we then kind of trust even his comedy? You know, don't you think like if you're rubbing elbows, you know, constantly with billionaires that you are living a different life and the the things you say are now affected by that lifestyle? I would think so. I mean, we see it's not just Dave Chappelle. We see it with all people. We certainly saw Ellen DeGeneres, uh, Amy Schumer, uh, people's comedy changes. Kevin what? Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart. I don't know that I don't know that I would ever call Kevin Hart a truth teller, but yes. He's always kind of a bit of a performance artist in my, you know, time. But I I I do think like, especially Amy Schumer, uh, that's why it was like really kind of disheartening to see that. And in later specials, I think she went back to it. Uh, but what are you laughing at? She ran out of Patrice's truth to tell. What you, huh? <laughs> that's her, that's like the whole uh that's the 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 bit on Amy Schumer. 
Oh, oh, oh! That she steals. Pat- that she that she steals Patrice's material. Yeah. Right. Well, I, if he was still alive, she would still be telling the truth. <laughs> well, um, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm going from like, you know, and and even and even Hershey. I mean, she's coming from a you know, she's coming from a higher end political family. So, you know, it's not completely true. Wait, she's she's related to Chuck Schumer. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm like a hundred percent sure. Yeah, Chuck Schumer. It's like her uncle or something, Amy Schumer. Like, yeah, they are. Yeah, they're definitely related. What is it? It's oh, Chuck, Chuck. It's her cousin, not her uncle. But yeah, yeah. They, I mean, like they've done events together and stuff. Like that's not like a that's not even a hidden fact. Um, it's almost like the game's rigged. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I but I I know from behind the scenes thing that she actually she did a lot of work on her own, you know, too. And you can, I mean, just because you have like a family member in politics or something that also shouldn't mean that you're not able to succeed. That's fucked up too. Um, so Bankman Fried appeared ready to spend even larger sums of money in Washington and in media. Earlier this year, he floated the idea of spending up to $1 billion on politics in 2024 if it meant blocking Donald Trump. He also texted Elon Musk this spring, signaling his interest in spending billions to join in on the Twitter acquisition deal. This is interesting because with all his talk about making the world a better place, like what is this is not I don't think this is how most people think of making the world a better place. Um, (laughs) I don't think when I think making the world a better place, I ever think of Twitter. In hindsight, there may have been signs of trouble. Weeks before the midterms, Bankman Freed suddenly walked back his intent to spend quite so much on politics in the coming years, calling the $1 billion figure a dumb quote on his part. He didn't spend much in the lead up to the midterm election, saying, I think primaries are more important. At the same time, Democrats were warning that a lack of funding in the last weeks of the election cycle could jeopardize their chance of securing a House majority. What the fall of a crypto billionaire says about scrutiny of the ultra rich. It's not every day that a billionaire suddenly loses everything. That dishonor belongs to a small and igno- igno. Hmm, how do we say this word? Ignomi. <laughs> Sometimes I'm looking at a word and I go, I, there's just too many vowels here. Wait one second. Uh, For real? Ignominious. Do you know that one? No, it's not. Wait. I was going to say ignominious. I'm going to say, oh wait, I'm going to have the computer say it. Ignominious. Ignominious is how you say it. Ignominious. I was like, I know it seems like there will be like a cool like renaissance pronunciation. Well, that one's not going to get we retained. We were all wrong. Yeah. And you know what? That's what, you know what? What a beautiful moment to all admit as a group that we were all fucking wrong. But also, oh, and I, wait, I also didn't even look. I'm just guessing like this is um, like a fancy circle is what this means. But I, I like looked it up and I didn't even look up the definition. I was just using context for this one, though. Um, deserving or causing public disgrace or shame. Oh, oh, because it, it's Elizabeth Holmes. Sorry, I was I read that as Elizabeth uh, Warren. <laughs> And I was like, what's wrong with Elizabeth Warren? It's Elizabeth Holmes, just like I mentioned before with Theranos. Um, uh, Circle, including the likes of Elizabeth Holmes, Bernie Madoff, and uh, Archegos founder and investor Bill Huang. And it's rarer still for a renowned philanthropist and political megadonor's wealth to topple like a house of cards. 
But I feel like we do hear about it happening like kind of a good amount. Given just how wide ranging Bakeman Freed's influences, his downfall has caused turmoil in several circles. FTX's customers were mostly individual traders. Some now fear they've lost their life savings. Fuck. FTX's fall has affected the stability of the broader crypto market. And the price of Bitcoin, the world's most highly valued digital currency, has plunged. The FTX Future Fund has said it likely wouldn't be able to honor all the commitments it made to the grantees, and Bankman Freed's financial ruin could cause further shockwaves in philanthropy. The effective uh, altruism nonprofit Open Philanthropy has already acknowledged that the FTX Foundation's shuttering would affect its grant-making strategy. Bankman Freed had essentially earmarked 99% of his wealth for the public good, and now all of that is lost. If the allegation that FTX used $10 billion in customers' funds to help Alameda Research is true, the possibility that Bankman-Fried could face jail is very realistic. And we'll get into what he was charged with because that came out today. A former SEC enforcement attorney and expert in cybersecurity law said, if these facts are true, someone came to me as a client and said, here's what I did. I robbed my customers to enrich myself. That's very serious. It goes far beyond securities violations. Stark compared the magnitude of any potential crime to that of Holmes, who defrauded investors, or financier Madoff, the mastermind between the biggest Ponzi scheme in history. I think this is worse because there is a retail investor component component to this imbroglio. What is what these these words are fucking killing me right now, guys? Words I've never even absolutely seen. I need to do a glossary every week before hand. Um Oh, An extremely confusing, complicated, or embarrassing situation. Imbroglio. Imbroglio. Okay. Jesus Christ. Imbroglio. This is why I don't. Re- this is why people don't want to read Vox. Uh, to this imbroglio, Bankman Freed and his companies were based in the Bahamas, but it's going to be illegal no matter where you are to take stuff that's not yours," said Stark. That so many people in different industries are rocked by a single person's financial ruin illuminates the magnitude of influence. Uh, billionaires have. It also shows why that influence needs serious, careful examination. How much credence can we give to a sales pitch? (laughs) I mean, print that out on a t-shirt. Bankman Freed has defended the crypto industry and specifically his exchange against the perception that it was rife with scams or danger. He says FTX is running an honest market, checks customers' backgrounds, buys carbon credits to offset its emissions, and is more efficient than the mainstream financial system. But it's clear... The main appeal for him is getting rich quick, Bloomberg Zeke Foe wrote in a profile from April. Bankman Freed may not have been forthcoming when concern about FTX started to bubble up on November 7th before the degree of FTX's financial disorder was evident. Bankman Freed tweeted that everything was fine. Assets are fine, he wrote. FTX has enough to cover all client holdings. We don't invest uh, client assets even in treasuries, he wrote in another. But it now appears that wasn't true. He has since deleted those tweets. In a Twitter DM interview with Future Perfect reporter Kelsey Piper, following the implosion of FTX, Bankman Freed revealed a cynical view of ethics that seemed to contradict the more nuanced views of right and wrong he'd discussed in the press before. Man, a lot of the dumb shit I said, he wrote, it's not true. Not really. All right. 
have a, I have, I have a girl you should meet. Her name's Casey Anthony. Uh, by his accounting, a person's virtue is largely perception, as much about whether someone is seen as a winner or a loser as it is about actually acting virtuously. I mean, certainly, I agree with that in the society that we've set up. But I mean, I think in our hearts, we we mostly know the difference between right and wrong. But the performative virtue that we have set up in society that people are still uh, respond to uh, so eagerly. I mean, so, you know, obviously, this is his fault. But it's also it's also our fault for lapping it up like the little puppies that we are the dumb fucking puppies. Um, everyone goes around pretending that perception reflects reality, he wrote in the candid, at times shocking exchange. It doesn't. Some of this decade's greatest heroes will never be known, and some of its most beloved people are basically shams. I don't disagree with that. Um, all right. So that's the I just thought that was a very interesting piece, probably um, one of the most interesting pieces uh, of this week. And then um, if we want to just go up to the live updates, uh, it's the CNN is kind of reporting in real time. Uh, uh, he has officially at, within the past two hours been charged with fraud and he faces a maximum of 115 years in prison if convicted on all counts against him. Um the charges include wire fraud, wire fraud conspiracy, and conspiracy to commit money laundering. Each carry a maximum prison sentence of 20 years, uh, according to a press release from the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. Um, and he has been denied bail as well because uh, he posed a flight risk considering his access to substantial finances yeah i mean this guy fascinating 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 story did you you didn't did you hear anything about his personal life i didn't read about his personal life no why so apparently he was heading down like it says he was like a lot of it was happening in the bahamas right and he was in the bahamas Yeah. apparently he had like a sick mansion in the bahamas uh-huh. uh and him and his girlfriend were in an open relationship oh god however there was 10 dudes in the house and only one girl oh <laughs> where's where where who's reporting that i mean it's I, i'll pull it up jesus christ I mean, listen, in the, if it's like if he's hanging out with like crypto and finance bros, like I guess that does me- make sense. But like and I, I mean, it's weird because like on paper, it looks very bad. That being said, I've certainly as a comedian been in many spaces where there was a lot of dudes and only me. I guess I just don't really think of it anymore. Mathematics. Oh, my God. I want to see what his girlfriend looks like. Let me pull this up. I mean, you could get him. I don't want to get him, Mike. Caroline Ellison? Yeah. Oh, it's this girl that I yeah, saw yeah. all around. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, I didn't, I didn't put those, those two together. She also, she looks like a child. Yeah, I mean. How old is she? Old enough. I literally didn't think that was her real face. I thought that was like a meme. <laughs> <laughs> Because I don't, I don't read a lot about crypto um, or finance. I kind of like skip over those articles mostly. But just this was it was such a, a big story that it kind of like started being something that was discussed among my friend group, which is why I wanted to cover it. Because I think when something is so big that it that it 
you know, affects the wallets of people who aren't even like making that much money, then that's really time to talk about it. Because if it's something that just kind of is, you know, affecting other billionaires or multimillionaires, it's like, all right, well, that's the risk you took. But when it starts, you know, affecting your friends who are comedians and and invested, you know, the money that they that they, you know, did 18,000 hours on the road to invest, then I'm in, you know, to make, then I'm interested. Um, how old is she? She is 28. Um, and also, when I looked up her name, a uh, an article came up titled FTX's Inner Circle had a secret chat group called Wire Fraud. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking hilarious. Also, I mean, but I mean, I, you know, everyone's biggest fear in comedy is that their group chat floats to the surface. So I can't even, and I mean, I'm sure beyond comedy too, but just, you know, comedians are specifically talking about the most horrific things. So, and okay, she's an American, is there something like, this is rude, but is there something like wrong with her? Why does she look like that? Is that mean? I just don't under, it looks like, I want to make sure this isn't like a pumpkin situation. No, I did say it looks like she has Benjamin Button's disease. Yeah, like I, I like I wanted to, I, at this point now, I'm like concerned like that she's like getting taken advantage of in some way. Okay, anyway. Um, all right. So, hey, there responsible adults over the age of 21 living in states where Delta 8 is legal. You know what I'm going to ask you. I ask it every week. Do you want to get high? Do you want to get really high? Do you want to get really super duper legally high? Well, then now's the time to go to YoDelta.com where you can stock up on high quality lab tested Delta 8. I think this is a great uh, gift for the holidays. Um, if you know that you have, you know, relatives who are stressed out or they're going to buy their own, you know, drugs in quotes anyway, just, just give it to them. Give the people what they want to be zoned out and not functioning in reality. That's what everyone wants. Get a, get, get a vape, get a gummy, get whatever you want and stuff it in that stocking and then swipe them across the head and say, you don't have to fucking deal with anything. The only way out is around. So if you're over the age of 21 and living in the majority of states where this is legal, you're going to go to YoDelta.com and stock up on Delta 8. What's Delta 8? The jury's still out, but what they're saying is it's found in hemp and can be legally shipped to various states and get you high. At YoDelta.com, you can find a mix of gummies and vapes for all your getting stoned needs. And I can tell you that Delta 8 works because I've seen it work on the people around me and obviously take these products responsibly. So once more, that's YoDelta.com, the official Delta 8 sponsor of the Gash Digital Network. And if you use promo code GAS, you're going to get 25% off. Once more, that's promo code GAS for 25% off. YoDelta, home of the Delta 8 that will get you super high. Now back to the show. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. All right. So moving on. Um, next article is about the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, uh, climate change documentary uh, that apparently flopped, but I didn't even know about it. OK, so this is from Fox News because, of course, they jump on any chance to, t- to say that AOC had some kind of a failure in her personal or political life. They fucking love it. They just like they do a circle jerk about it. So. AOC climate change documentary earns only $80 per theater despite rave critic reviews. Creator's previous film panned by audiences with 11% on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, it's like, okay, you can't trust Rotten Tomatoes because anyone can fucking vote on there. And anytime there's like a, a, like a strong female movie or like movies starring like people of, uh, of color, it always gets a bad rating because people are fucking misogynistic and racist. So you can't always trust Rotten Tomatoes, guys. Um, New York Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio 
Ocasio-Cortez's new climate change documentary debuted in movie theaters over the weekend, generating an abysmal $80 per theater. The new film, To the End, was filmed over four years and follows four young women, Cortez activist Varshini Prakash, climate policy writer Rihanna Gunwright, and political strategist uh, Alexandra Rojas as they attempt to pass sweeping climate change legislation in Congress. The film currently boasts an 88% fresh critic score on Rotten Tomatoes and does not yet have an audience score. Representative Ocasio-Cortez offers the best on-screen antidote to despair. She's funny, a canny political strategy. Uh, Teal Bugby of the New York Times wrote, okay, well, everyone loves her. We know that. To the end is set to ignite more Americans to take action. Roger, uh, Roger T, uh, what? RogerEberts.com. Yeah, I know, but why is there a T there? Oh, yeah, that does seem like a... That's what I'm like. I'm like, why is that there? I know Roger Ebert, but why is there a T? I was like, is it Roger T Ebert.com? Is that a different, are they trying to trick us? Is that a different website? Um, Roger uh, Ebert.com's Nick Allen wrote in his review. The documentary debuted on more than 120 screens over the weekend, but garnered less than $10,000 across all theaters, coming in 33rd place overall at the box office. I mean, number one, I didn't hear, did, you, did any of you guys hear about this documentary? No. Yeah, exactly. So, so it, they, were, they had no press on it. And then number two, I mean, part of the reason I wanted to read this article is because it just goes into what we talk about week after week on this um, podcast, which is we got to make climate change more interesting. I don't know if we do like the man show where we just get hot, big titted ladies jumping on trampolines talking about climate change. But this the strategy that we have right now, guys, isn't working. We have to make climate change more interesting. Otherwise, no one will pay attention. And I know that seems like a ridiculous thing to have to dangle keys over America like we're little babies getting a photo taken in the mall. But we know that. Let's st- stop trying to fix Americans. They're not going to get fixed. We need to fix the planet. Okay. Dangle. Find a way to dangle the keys because other- the earth is melting underneath us otherwise. Corinne, can I just point out that my dog is crying? No. That you have a trampoline. Yes, I do. But I, I don't have tits. I know some women who have tits. Okay. We can just, all we need to do is read facts from this documentary. Love it. Just have hot girls jumping in your trampoline. I love it. We 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 spitball. I have so many great ideas that we spitball on this podcast, but then we never film them during the week, so we have to do this. Look, Send me your avails, Mike. Theatrically, it's going to bomb because nobody's going to movie theaters anymore. But I'll tell you right now, Hulu, yeah. right. they pay $2 million for that. Okay. Well, we get we, we get a nice camera. We get some nice tits. And we get and we, we get on that trampoline. I think this is a great idea. I think this is a great idea. And for our and for our um, heterosexual female listeners and for our gay listeners, we'll just get someone with a big dick and and, and, and gym shorts. And then we kind of just like... Yeah, that'll be like the second half. Because you know about. women are going to watch the first half because mm-hmm. they like care about the world. Mm-hmm. And men are already going to be sucked in at that point. Like, yo, the girl's going to come back at some point. Right, right. I don't need this guy helicoptering. Right. But, you know. <laughs> helicoptering. I love this. I think this is a gr- this is very very good. Um, several Oscar bait films lauded during film festivals have struggled to excel in theaters this year, with critics at- uh, attributing the audience drop off to the rise in streaming platforms, audiences increasing distrust distrust in critic scores, and topics that do not interest a large swath of the people um, or of the public. And again, I think I also can see this doing a lot better on a streaming platform because like yeah I'm also not going to go you know 
take a take a date night to go watch AOC's uh, climate change documentary with my boyfriend. But I would absolutely watch it, you know, in a in a blanket on my couch once that window's fixed. Um, the latter factor may have been the largest contributor to the film's meager earnings with climate change documentaries in the last several years failing to draw in a substantial audience. And it's like, how many times, guys, how many times do we have to pass over these documentaries or pass over um, the articles until we realize that what climate change needs is jugs? Earlier this year, The Territory, a National Geographic film about indigenous people fighting effects of climate change. Everyone's already sleeping, guys. Where's the tits? Earned less than $70,000 throughout its entire run in theaters. You need tits. You need death. You need an. You need a story about an animal and a human reuniting. You need a baby murder. I mean, come on. Sell it to me, baby. Put SPF, right? The guy knows how to sell. Uh-huh. Right? He's doing time behind bars. He's all about philanthropy. Okay. Put his brain to good use. And sell us on climate change. I also like that you're now referring to Sam um, Bakeman Freed as SBF because when you, you I, I, at first I thought you said SPF and I thought you went back to the boobs and how we would w- have to apply SPF to the tits. That's where mine, tribute. <laughs> That's where my mind went. Um, Rachel Lears and Robin Blotnick, the creators of To the End, previously made Knock Down the House. Uh, I, and I did watch that, and that's very good, um, which revolved around the 2018 congressional primary campaigns of Cort- Cortez, Amy Valela, Cory Bush, Paula Jean, Swearingen, and four other progressive Democrats. That's a really interesting... I really like that. That was really good. It, it really lit a fire under my ass. While the Knock Down the House documentary garnered praise from movie critics certified with a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes, the public had a very different opinion opinion on the project with a scoring sitting score sitting at 11 percent again this is like we're this this is yes because everyone who reads fox news gave it a zero percent i mean the same thing happened to the guys we fucked itunes rating when everyone from legion of skanks decided to give it a, a you know a zero star rating so this is not trustworthy information guys this is not that's the, the guys we fucked rating on on apple podcast is this is affected to this day from podcast wars when i stand behind the show is like one of the fucking best shows on the internet uh one audience member called the film a knocked down drag out snooze fest while others knocked the film for its extremely polarizing message. <sighs> okay. I feel like I must have watched a completely different movie than the ones the critics watched. One viewer said it was absolutely terrible and it actually made me dislike Alexandria Cortez after it was all over. I now see the audience score and I would say it is much more accurate compared to the critics. In 2020, a seven minute film on the Green New Deal narrated by Ocasio Cortez and illustrated by Molly Crabapple was nominated for an Emmy. All right. So that's that. I'm going to try to check this out i mean i'm if there if someone could make an engaging film on climate change i would be more than happy to sit down and watch it um i'm trying to see if michael moore's did a oh he did for sure yeah i was like he michael moore has had to have covered a uh climate change thing and he did planet of the humans no, that's Jeff Gibbs. Never mind. Wait, no, Michael Moore. Oh, he, he. Okay, so he produced Planet of the Humans, which was then directed by Jeff Gibbs. Um, what is this? Let's talk about this. Michael Moore. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, he didn't. He has not directed one. It seems he just produced one, probably because he knew it would fail. And he's like, well, I'm, I, I care about it, but I don't want to actually put my slap my name on directing it. Um, but I mean. 
because I got to say, like, no matter what you think about Michael Moore, I truly believe he has a gift to make anything engaging. Um, I worked on Sicko. I interned on Sicko. And... I was kind of like disappointed when I got the job because I had spent all of film school trying to work for Michael Moore's production company. And then I finally, my senior year, got the gig. And of course, I was like, oh, of course, he's not doing fucking, you know, bowling for Columbine or Roger and me. He's doing something about the healthcare industry, which is, you know, arguably, you know, right on the same level of snooze fest as climate change. And then um, as I was working on the film and when I finally saw the film, I was like, "That this is a f- very, very interesting movie. And I, and I know lots of people have problems with how he presents things and there's a lot of bias. I argue that you just go hard for the point that you're trying to make. Um, that's the kind of documentary, uh, documentary filmmaker he is. Uh, but, you know, people have different opinions on that. Anyway, so it's interesting to me that he merely produced that because I feel like somewhere in his heart he knew that no one cared about climate change. I haven't even heard of Planet of the Humans. Fuck. How about this other director, though? He does one movie with AOC. It bombs. Yeah. He's like, I'm going right back to the well. AOC is leading my climate change documentary. And right. now that's tanked. Yeah. Like, is there a worse director-muse combination in history? Yeah, no, I guess not. Not good. Well, and then also goes goes along with kind of my problem with AOC, which is like it just feels like she wants to be famous more than anything else, which I mean, I can't comment on too hard because obviously I'm trying to be famous, too, but I'm being very open about it. You know, I'm not I'm not doing it under the guise of being a politician. You fucked up. You need to be taking more pictures looking sad in front of fences. Is that what she does? Yeah. She goes down to the border once a year and just looks sad. Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. All right. Well, that's that. Um, this Here's a fun, a fun light one. Um, this is from Vice. New study shows man children are destroying women's sex lives. I mean, this is very up my alley. This is so up my alley. I almost saved it for guys we fucked, but I was like, you know, uh, we have enough to do on that show. So I'm going to, all news goes to this show now. Um on the day 29-year-old Londoner Leanne moved in with her now ex-boyfriend six years ago, she remembers crying. Her name has been changed for privacy like many others in this piece. Not as you might expect because of excitement or joy, but rather because it immediately became apparent that she was going to end up taking on all of their life admin from that moment on. Over the year they lived together, this fear became reality. It hit me he was a man-child when he didn't know how to use the washing machine or make the bed. I want to go on record and say I also have no idea how to use a washing machine, but I can make a bed. Um, And although he made minor uh, efforts to improve at chores, he just didn't seem capable of doing so. He broke her favorite knife, flooded the kitchen. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Let's step back and talk about having a favorite knife and that that might be a red flag (laughs) even my psycho ass doesn't have a favorite knife okay (laughs) he broke her favorite knife flooded the kitchen nearly set the flat on fire multiple times and would go missing on three-day benders oh what's his number um he seemed to feel bad but justified by his ignorance by saying his parents never expected him to do any chores at home she says bear in mind he'd moved out of his parents house seven years earlier but also, like, how do you not know this? I mean, like, it's not like you're you, before you live with a boyfriend, you just like don't know that was anything my main about complaint. him. Sorry to talk over. You. No, go my ahead. Main complaint from the first sentence of this article was that it's like if you're moving in with someone and don't know this about them, then that's 
you shouldn't be moving in together. Yeah, there's a very specific reason why I've never lived with a boyfriend, and it's because my type is incompetent man child. <laughs> so, so there's a there's a fucking reason why I haven't um, done that uh, because it would be an absolute fucking nightmare, f- you know, for me. Uh, all right, this behavior and the ensuing plethora of excuses will likely be familiar to many people who've lived with cisgender heterosexual men, though not exclusively, but more on that later. I mean, even from Mike saying my uh, my apartment uh, while I'm on the road for long periods of, of time, listen, you usually break something, but I I do, I, I say what, you know, what outweighs what. And for me, Alfred loves you so much and you do such a wonderful job taking care of him that it's worth it to come home and have flammables on the stove, maybe have to climb over my fence to get in, a couple <laughs> a couple broken picture frames or crown molding. I've, I've, cause I've assessed that. I've assessed that like an insurance company before. Before I leave him, but the, but the the truth of the matter stands, and that's Alfred likes you better than anyone else that he stays with, and my my little boy has to be happy when I'm on the road. And that's it. Um, dubbed man children, these men can be characterized by a number of childlike traits, including quote not noticing the dishes need washing. Well, I mean, come on, guys, get a dishwasher. No one should be washing dishes in 2022. Um, or bins need emptying and weaponizing their own incompetence when they eventually do it. And I'm only talking about if you live in an apartment. I know if you live in a house, everyone can't afford it. But if you're living a rental, fucking make the make the soup put it in for you. Um, being ungrateful for the emotional and physical care provided by their partner physical care what are you skinning your knees or are they talking about blowjobs and general helplessness when it comes to taking care of themselves and sometimes their own kids now this phenomenon has officially been confirmed by science a recent study published in the archives of sexual behavior journal found that not only do man children exist but they're actually killing women's libidos with their ineptitude and this is a concept that we talked about um on guys we fucked with some therapists called um and they referred to it as when a a man goes from mouth to nipple and that really resonated with me because i think that in every relationship i've had there's been uh, or most relationships I've had, there's been a, a moment when the man goes from mouth to nipple and it really does like shut off your vagina when you start feeling like you're raising a man, like raising a man who should be fully raised and it fucking sucks and there's no need for it because like I don't believe men are incompetent at all. I think they are faking incompetence so that we do everything, which if you look at it, it's a great strategy and you guys are fucking killing it, but it's not helping me. Uh, researchers from universities in Canada and Australia set out to explore if this kind of relationship unfairness could explain why many women partnered with men report a low sex drive. Indeed, they found when women perform more household labor than their partner, they tend to see them like a dependent child. This unsurprisingly reduces their sexual desire for that person. From mouth to nipple. Ongoing inequalities in domestic labor have even been cited as why more women file for divorce than men. Recent statistics show women carry out 60% more unpaid work than men. According to the authors, until their research, this heteronormative dynamic had never been studied in relation to women's sexual satisfaction or desire in relationships before, which as anyone who's done even a little bit of reading about women's sexual satisfaction knows, very little research in general has been done on women's sexual satisfaction 
satisfaction, which is why there's still an argument about what's if squirting is pee or not. And no one's really been able to confirm it. And I know people will send me articles from time to time being like, it's this or it's this. But there's never been like a fucking, in my opinion, hardcore academic paper that's like, this is 100% what it is. Science stopped caring when doctors weren't allowed to finger female patients anymore. Nice one. How long were you waiting to say that, Mike? I mean, I mean, <laughs> I, whole life? I stopped myself from doing a mouth to nipple joke. What, what what was it? Now I want to hear it. I've never seen a woman's sexual desire go down when I went mouth to nipple. Okay. All right. Oh, my God. Uh, Emily Harris. <laughs> Emily Harris, one of the co-authors, says this is because there's a few unspoken assumptions about women's sexual desire. One of these is that low sexual desire is caused by individual factors like hormones and stress or general relationship factors like conflict and dissatisfaction, she tells Vice. What these assumptions miss is the broader context of gender inequality, which if anyone watches my Instagram stories, you know I fucking love talking about. Sorry, Van Anders, uh, another co-author, adds that many people find comfort in these assumptions. It can feel more manageable to change your hormones or try stress reduction techniques than tackle structural inequalities. And of course it is. Would I rather take a pill than break down the patriarchy? Yes, I would. Okay. Um, the correlation between man babies and low libido hasn't been overlooked by the women who've dated or lived with these men, though. Our sex drive completely died after six months of living together, reveals Leanne. I couldn't take him seriously anymore and resented my role in our relationship. I felt like his mom. Although she's it's a British article, guys, uh, although she's um, which I think actually m makes this even more reputable because the British complain a lot less than the Americans. So if this is the concept that British people are um, fucking uh, complaining about, you know, you know, um, you know, there's an actual problem. OK, sorry, I'm, I'm, I was I looked up because I'm like, it's on regular American Vice. But um, obviously uh, this is happening in England. OK. Uh, mm -mm -mm. Although she's in a much happier, balanced relationship now, Leanne says her man-child experience has influenced her view on having actual children. Yes, me too. I've already raised so many people. Um, I can't imagine spending two plus decades picking up after someone who doesn't appreciate my labor, she says. M. Witt, a 48-year-old writer from Los Angeles, knows what it's like to simultaneously care for children and a man-child. In fact, her ex-husband's childish ways, specifically his lack of support around the house, only started bothering her when they had kids of their own. Suddenly, I realized that not only was I in charge of the housework, but also all the child rearing, she says. I had to discipline our kids on my own. My ex would even steal away to the bedroom when they were acting out. It was exhausting. Like Leanne, Witt found that her ex's behavior eradicated her sexual interest in him. They had a sexless marriage by the end. Now that I'm with a totally capable man, I'm eager to have sex with him because I'm filled with affection for how he treats me, she says. I see him as a bona fide grown-up, not a boy that I have to take care of. And let me tell you, when someone does something like an act of service for me, like that's definitely like one of my main love, love languages. Uh, when, it, when I come home, and like someone like bought groceries or fucking someone cleaned up something that I wasn't expecting. Oh my God, that makes me so fucking happy and makes me feel so cared for. Um, one key characteristic of man-child behavior appears to be the pattern of listening to their partner's complaints, changing for a short while, then regressing to their former ways. Yep. And I mean, men are not the only people guilty of this, but we're just talking about this in the 
context of a heterosexual uh, relationship. When I'd bring up my grievances, he'd be very apologetic and feel guilty that I'd been bearing the entire workload of chores. 24-year-old Katie from Nevada says of her now ex-boyfriend, her name has been changed to protect his fragile ego. That's their words, not mine. I think his guilt is why he'd try and help out for a couple of weeks, but when he realized it required continued work and effort, he'd give up. He told me so many times that he was going to change and never did. And so in this paragraph, I do want to also point out, like, I mean, I think part of the reason why this is this phenomenon continues of men changing for a short period of time and then going back to their old ways is because um, we as women need to be setting boundaries that we really mean. So if you say, if you don't change, I'm going to leave, you then have to really leave because if you don't leave, then he knows that he gets to have you in his life and he also doesn't have to do any of the work around the house. And it sucks. And I've done this before and it fucking blows and you feel confused because you're like, you're kind of still in love with the person, but you're like, they're not, they're not respecting me and my role in this relationship relationship and they're not doing their part. Therefore, this relationship can no longer continue. But it seems there will always be you know, at least in current times, a woman who will put up all that extra, um, who will put up with all this extra work and do all this extra work just to keep a man, whatever the fuck that means. I, like, I'm always puzzled by that. Keep a man. Who wants one? Um, and, uh, and and that goes across the board for all for all partners. This is not like I, I'm just talking heteronormatively. Um, but um uh, yeah, uh, that's the problem. Like, you know, if we are so desperate for love and so desperate for a relationship and our, our partner can see that, you know, it, a lot of people aren't going to do the extra work if they know that damn well that they don't have to. And that's and, that, and that's on, you know, so that's that, that's both people's problem in the relationship. Um, now the big question, why does it happen? Jordan Dixon, a London-based psychotherapist, tells Vice, many humans struggle to look after themselves both emotionally and physically. This struggle occurs primarily in the relationship with ourselves and then, lo and behold, in our intimate relations with others. This can stem from patterns we learn in childhood and early relationships. Dixon rejects rejects the term man-child. Instead, she prefers to use adult child because, as she says, anyone can be a child in a relationship regardless of gender and sexuality. And I absolutely agree with this. And I do know um, female adult childs for sure or adult children for sure. Um, and they are equally as annoying. Um, but I think a lot of times when it is a female adult child, the, the ways that we see the childlike behavior is often in emotional maintenance rather than like um, physical, con uh, uh, you know, and labor comp contributions around the house. That's just my personal opinion, though, um, or observe my personal observations. Uh, yet she observes this dynamic does often stem from heteronormative gender expectations. Dixon explains that men often face more social pressure to conform to conventional gender role behaviors, which for them has historically not included domestic labor. A hundred percent. But this, the, the minute women started having to go to work, too, and you needed two incomes to hold, you know, uphold the household, that should have gone out the window. At the same time, many studies have shown women are more likely to take on career roles. This is thanks to societal expectations of them being uh, being for others rather than being for themselves, as Simone de Beauvoir argues in The Second Sex. Dixon explains this can lead to emotional and physical burnout, otherwise known as human giver syndrome, leading its sufferer emo leaving its sufferer emotionally depleted and potentially resentful of their partner. Although we associate the so-called 
adult child with cishet men, Zixon asserts that it regularly occurs in same-sex or even gender non-conforming relationships, too. This was certainly the case for 26-year-old Charlie from London, who experienced this dynamic in their recent mask-femme-queer relationship. Their name has been changed for safety. When their now ex-partner moved in with them, uh, isn't that interesting that, like, for the queer relationship, they say their name has been changed for safety, but in the um, uh, heterosexual relationship, they were like, it's to protect the man's ego? Food for thought. Um, when their now ex-partner moved in with them during the 19 COVID-19 lockdown, Charlie realized they didn't know how to look after themselves at all. They'd never do chores, um, nor cook despite having a very restrictive kid-like palate and would regularly have tantrums or weapon weaponize incompetence. Some people lack skills and need their hand-holding uh, when learning how to do basic stuff, but some will just take advantage of you when they realize you're willing to do things for them, says Charlie. Cishet men do it all the time, but it's less acknowledged that people of other genders uh, act like this. When you're not living in a heteropessimist uh, fantasy, you realize that these manipulation techniques are shit that people do just because they can. That's not to say that these tactics don't generally stem from heteronormative gender roles, though, or that they aren't more common in heterosexual relationships. Those who benefit from norms are much likely uh, less likely to question them and often actively support them, uh, says Van Anders, meaning because cishet men benefit from the societal presumption that women should take on more household and nurture labor, they're less inclined to make any effort to change this status quo. And I wrote about that a little bit in in the Guys We Fucked book because like, yeah, I mean, it, it takes a it takes a it takes a big man to be like, I'm going to do more work just because it's the right thing to do. And this is not anti-man, like just most people aren't big enough to do that. Uh, LGBTQ plus people who are often persecuted by heteronormativity are more likely to actively divert from this script. Well, then, what's the solution for those dating an adult child, particularly if, despite it all, they don't want to break up with them? This is the position 22-year-old Annie from the UK has found herself in after moving in with her boyfriend at the beginning of the year. She discovered that not only does he play video games until the early hours of the morning, but he's incapable of doing chores. He's not incapable. He's just he's just saying that he is. To make matters worse, he doesn't take criticism well, even if it's constructive to him or his relationship. He sees it as a personal attack. Someone needs to read the four agreements, says Annie, who has brought the topic up several times. She's even suggested methods to manage the division of chores, but so far to no avail. I feel flat about it, she says. I still care about him and love him, but I feel it less. I can feel myself pulling away. For now, Annie's come up with a probably flawed solution. I'm just not going uh, I'm just going to not clean up his shit for a while and see what happens. <laughs> um, when it comes to professional advice, Dixon says it's worth considering whether the relationship dynamic is partly fueled by them taking on a parent caregiver role, thus enabling the adult child behavior. If this is the case, undertaking an honest reevaluation of all aspects of the relationship, <laughs> including the uh, one that they have with themselves, might be helpful. If this doesn't work, as it didn't for so many of the people quoted in this piece, it might be worth consulting a therapist. If the problem is too embedded, perhaps reconsider the relationship completely. As for the man-child himself, there's a fairly simple solution. Men should take an equitable share of household labor, says Harris. This means thinking critically about what they rely on their partners for, including 
planning social events and providing emotional support for themselves and their children. Van Anders adds that men also need to encourage these changes among other men. This will make for more equitable relationships, which in the end reflects values we should all strive for, she tells Vice, with the added potential uh, bonus of improved sexual experiences. Or the primary one. However you look at it, I don't care what the fucking reason. I don't care if you're improving for pussy, just improve. Um, Or cock or whatever it is, whatever. I don't care what sex you are. Uh, Ultimately, the man-child isn't just bad for society. It's bad for literally everyone's sex life. Foreplay starts the moment you wake up in the morning. If you wake up to a million chores and a partner who won't help you, that's a huge turnoff, concludes Katie. Foreplay isn't uh, only about warming the body up. It's about warming the mind up, too. Man tattoo that on yourself if your partner constantly does things to show you he respects you and wants to be an active partner in your life nothing is sexier and I think that last line is a great like thing to talk like to think about um uh you know especially as like a a a heterosexual man you're like I I think people forget like yeah you can feel loved for certain you know reasons or you can feel adored but people also want to feel respected across the board and I know men men certainly care a lot a lot about feeling respected so the fact that it kind of like goes in one ear and out the other that women want to feel respected too is um, confusing and concerning to me. All right, last story of the night. This is our main story. Brittany Griner is free. What wonderful, good, positive news. I'm so fucking happy um, to hear about this. Uh, It's funny because, of course, um, I'm actually going to go with the conservative uh, pieces first because I was wondering, I knew Fox would find a way to spin this and make this not good news. And both of the articles they had running today were like, fucked up. So the first article they had running today said, or running this week was, um, it was today actually, Biden paid disturbingly high price for Griner admits left wing columnist. And, uh, <laughs> and then the second uh, one that just rains on everybody's parade is Brittany Griner trade fiasco, just latest example of American enemies using woke culture against us commentary. So we have somehow Fox News has somehow now even managed to make Brittany Griner's release from a Russian prison about uh, woke culture, which is fascinating. This article goes on to say uh, Brittany Griner was exchanged for Victor Bout last week, which I'm sure you all heard about. No one can beat us. We can only beat ourselves. That's a common metaphor that you'll hear in sports. The meaning is rather straightforward. Our team is more talented and tactically superior than everyone else. The only way that we will lose to those lesser teams is by making mistakes. In today's world, that perfectly encapsulates the United States, and our enemies know it. Last week, the U.S. executed uh, a prisoner swap with Russia. In exchange for sending Victor Bout, nicknamed the Merchant of Death, back to his homeland, we received WNBA player Brittany Griner, who was arrested and convicted of drug possession charges and sentenced to nine years in prison. The Russian media run by the Russian government mocked the trade. They said, we accepted Griner instead of Paul Whelan, a U.S. Marine who has been in Russian custody for four years because she's a gay black woman and he's a straight white man. Right here, I'm going to cut in and say, no, again, we're misreading it. We're misreading it. We're making it about race or gender or sexual orientation. No, it's about fame. Everything in America is about money and fame. And I don't know why people can't get this under their thick skulls. That's what it's about. It's about. It's about because 
we all know, we all started circulating the story about Brittany Griner. She became bigger celebrity than ever. Um, and Paul Whelan is a U.S. Marine who I'm sure you d- d- obviously deserves to be freed, but that's not a name that we have circulating. Is it obvious? Yeah. The guy was caught in Russia with like nine different passports, and he's there because they arrested him on espionage. He's probably a spy. What, Paul Whelan, you're saying? Yeah. Oh, so your 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 argument is that he he doesn't deserve to be freed. That we should have never given away the merchant of death for anything. Wait, wait but that's wait what? We shouldn't have but, traded. But, but oh oh because I'm oh I'm saying I'm saying Paul Whelan isn't the merchant of death though. That's the person that there's that's the U.S. Marine. Yeah, I'm saying yeah. neither one of these trades would have been a fair trade. Oh well, uh, I'm not saying fair. I'm I'm not I'm not saying fair trade as far as how it affects the government. I'm saying based on how America runs, this makes sense. And what the things that we pri- prioritize, sure. like we're not great at strategy over here. I'm just saying we didn't need to give him up. Right, but I I mean I think like uh, for looks, I think Biden was getting enough pressure that he did. But my argument is that it's not because she's gay and black. It, my argument is that because she was someone who us the commoners knew as a household name because of her celebrity. And she can dunk. And she, and she can dunk. Yeah, that's my that's my argument. Uh, the White House says that the uh, that Russia never offered Whelan in exchange for bout, uh, but that part is irrelevant. The more important takeaway is this: the Russians know that poking at woke culture is the best way to mock America. See, and again, I don't even know that. Then when they were doing that, like they thought because like if they wanted to get this you know guy back faster, like they would have they would have like kidnapped a celebrity or like that's even bigger or something. You know, I, I don't know that this logically, I don't know that, that I necessarily agree with the commentary in this article, but okay. They know there's certainly sit- also uh, the, the trade was offered to Trump uh, in like 2018 or something like that. They were like, yo, we'll give you this Paul Whelan guy back, but we want, we want our merchant of death out. And Trump was like, no. Right. Yeah. And, 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 but, but look how much we heard about that, you know? Uh, I think that like, I also do would argue that in the age of social media, if enough people got interested in somebody that anyone can become a celebrity. Um, and that's where I will say that, yes, maybe, um, being a, a gay black woman is more interesting to the public as far as the story that we were discussing. So I will agree with that part of it. So you're saying Paul Whelan needs more TikTok dances. Paul Whelan needs a little bit more zhuzh, for sure. Yeah. They know their citizens will find it uh, ridiculous that a nation placed more importance on a professional athlete than a Marine. That a nation believes someone's skin color and sexual orientation make them more valuable than someone who fought for the country's defense. <laughs> what is it? What, what, what? the idea of a Marine fighting for the country's defense. <laughs> like fucking Pearl Harbor happened yesterday. Fuck right. out of here. Right. Everyone hears Alfred crying in the background. Yeah. <laughs> You might. Yeah, he knows the bullshit. No, I know. Offers commenting on it. Uh, You might think that freeing Griner was a win for woke culture. After all, the United States was willing to free a man convicted of conspiring to kill American citizens in order to return a gay black woman to her home. Number one, I love how many times Fox is going to say gay and black and also how they refuse to um, capitalize the B in black, even though pretty much everyone does that now. Uh, Despite that, many in the media still say it wasn't fast enough. There were headlines like this one from MSNBC. Brittany Griner is finally freed, but her peril is that of black women in America. Um, 
You know, well, I mean, but 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 also there's always going to also there's always going to be that take on it. But in a, you know, a culture where we have 85,000 different news uh, sources that make money from clicks, you also have to sometimes take that angle because no one else has taken it and you need to get clicks. So I don't necessarily know like that one headline is an example of like woke culture taking over. Um, you know who's gleefully reading that head- headline? Vladimir Putin. The Russians are ecstatic to see us continue to fight about race. Uh, an, an Iranian journalist at the World Cup asked U.S. men's national team captain Tyler Adams how he can represent a country with so much discrimination happening against black people in America. The Iranian government runs the Iranian media. Are you seeing a pattern? The government almost certainly told uh, the journalist to ask, and they put journalist in quotes, journalist to ask that question. The goal was to get Adams to say something negative about his country or at the very least prod at a wound that's about to become infected. You better believe our enemies don't want that wound to heal. They're going to keep digging until the disease spreads throughout the American body. And yes, woke culture is a disease. Despite all the claims by its constituents, wokeness is not about unity. It's about dividing people into as many groups as possible. It is about focusing solely on people's outward appearance and identities. It's everything Americans used to stand against. When I was growing up in the 1990s, the most important identity anyone had was an American. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Listen to any... <laughs> Listen to... I mean, this is like... At some points, Fox just gets hack. Um, I can hear the Lee Greenwood playing. <laughs> I'm proud of American American. Um, uh, listen to any Hollywood speech nowadays. Uh, how many of them start with as a woman or as a person of color or as a gay person? The focus immediately becomes about the qualities that make us different rather than the distinguishing characteristic that all Americans all have in common. I mean, this person really seems to be missing the point that like many people don't feel like equal, like equal folks in America because of how we were treated. And we wish that we didn't have to start sentences with that, like as a woman. I don't think that's fun for anybody or as a person of color or as a queer person, et cetera, et cetera. Also, Uh, how many times are you going to use the word all in one sentence, dude? Right. Grow up. (laughs) (laughs) It would sound uh, ridiculous if someone stood up tomorrow and stated as an American, in fact, that person would probably be called a xenophobe. That's how far we've gotten from a united American identity. I don't know that that's true. Um, uh, Last year, as China was facing international criticism over human rights abuses in how do we say that? Xinjiang. Um, an official Chinese spokesperson stood at the Chinese embassy in Washington, D.C. and held up a picture of black slaves picking cotton in America from a, over 150 years ago. Some are bent on linking uh, job opportunity with forced labor and oppression because they have been doing this them, this themselves for hundreds of years in history, she said. An official Chinese spokesperson working on behalf of the Chinese government deflected concerns about forced labor uh, currently occurring in her home country by raising the issue of American slavery, which legally ended in 1866. Why? Because China understands that dividing the races in America is one of the keys to taking us down. Race relations often create more division than any other issue in American culture. And I mean, I do agree with that. I don't know. I I, I agree that race division is a huge problem in America and that it keeps us from achieving things. A lot of other parts of this um, are obviously crazy. Um, continuing to beat the drum that America America is a horrible, racist, homophobic country, despite all of the evidence to the contrary, is essential to ending the reign of the American empire. And our enemies are dancing in unison to that beat. They cannot beat us. We can beat ourselves. And right now we are. Um, all right. So that's that take. Uh, I really, I, you know, th- that, that was kind of like... Uh, 
classic Fox. Like, how can we take Brittany Griner getting out of prison and really just fucking spin it? And they they made me proud. Um, and then the last piece is I thought this was very interesting because I'm going to go kind of commentary on commentary. So the more more liberal commentary, and this is from Time uh, Magazine, is actually by. Uh, famous exoneree Amanda Knox and it says Amanda Knox uh, America asked the wrong questions about Brittany Griner Brittany Brittany Griner is finally home after 10 months of captivity in Russia I'd hope this would be a moment for uncontroversial celebration after all the American basketball star who had been convicted of absurd drug trafficking charges for possession of vape cartridges in her luggage and sentenced to nearly 10 years in prison was clearly being used by Putin as a political pawn in May the U.S. State Department declared her wrongfully detained, and yet the news of her release has led some to question whether she is worthy of freedom. It's giving me flashbacks. I know I love how she made it about her. Well, this was also to me me kind of a nod to last week's Casey Anthony. Um, But the only difference is I know Amanda Knox. Not well. I interviewed her once and I've talked to her a couple of times online. So but um, it's interesting to have been in the same room with a person, you know, America deals exclusively in nostalgia at this point. Well, nostalgia and also kind of like this awful thing also happened to me. Let me tell you how it is. You know, Griner was released in exchange for Victor Bout, the notorious arms dealer known as the Merchant of Death. It's this and the failure to release another American former Marine, Paul Whelan, who's been imprisoned um, in Russia for nearly four years that has complicated what would otherwise be a simple win for justice. The crudest version of this reaction comes from the likes of Donald Trump Jr., who tweeted, No one cuts better deals than Biden. We get an awful America-hating WNBA player, okay, um, while Russia gets an international arms dealer. The adults are back, but if you strip away the uh, demagoguery and insults... I said that word wrong, but you get it. Uh, There's a point worth addressing here. Victor Bout helped fuel some of the bloodiest conflicts of the 1990s, many in Africa selling uh, millions of dollars worth of weapons from the Soviet Union stockpiles. He was caught in 2011 through a sting operation where he was lured into attempting to sell anti-aircraft missiles to the Colombian militant group The FARC for use against American forces. Uh, For this, he was convicted of conspiring to kill Americans and aiding a terrorist organization and sentenced to 25 years in prison. He's a serious criminal who has caused serious suffering around the world, and it was, dare I say, a good thing that he was incarcerated. It's very possible that the arrest and conviction of Griner on trumped-up drug charges was done specifically with an aim to create leverage to get Bout released. They are not offenders of equal measure by any sane standard. Trump Jr. is right about that. But does it matter? Can you put a price on innocence? Take my story, for instance. The U.S. Department uh, never declared me wrongfully detained when I was locked up in Italy, though from day one, there was no reliable evidence that I had committed any crime at all. And there was copious evidence against Meredith Kircher's actual killer, Rudy Gaet. Uh, Is that how you say that? I forgot the trial. Um, Over the course of my four years of imprisonment, as many people around the world realized how badly I'd been railroaded, the official U.S. position remained that Italy was a sovereign nation with a legitimate justice system. And believe me, I wish Hillary Clinton would have pulled some strings to get a team of Navy SEALs to helicopter me to freedom or offer a high-value prisoner exchange. But despite accusations by Italian authorities of American meddling, the U.S. government couldn't help me. There was a measurable value to my innocence, a price to my freedom, but as I wrote in this essay for New Thinking, the financial and diplomatic 
diplomatic ties between the U.S. and Italy vastly outweighed the value of one wrongfully imprisoned nobody. There is much less to lose in diplomatic relations between the U.S. and Russia, by contrast, especially with the Russo-Ukrainian war in the background. After I was acquitted in 2011, I was retried and reconvicted in absentia uh, for the same crime and sentenced to 28.5 years. I had an appeal yet again while facing potential extradition. Um, I had largely given up hope of a sane outcome at this point. The truth didn't seem to matter. My best realistic hope was that when my appeal failed, I could beg the U.S. government to advocate for me to be able to serve out that unjust sentence in the U.S. rather than Italy to lessen the burden on my family. My lawyers advised me not to go out in public, no bars, no karaoke, no dancing, no fun. They learned from Casey Anthony. Be invisible and perfect. If you don't want to be uh, extradited, you need to appear worthy of U.S. intervention. I remember thinking as a deep uh, chasm opened in my chest, isn't it enough that I'm innocent? The truth was no. To the perspective of the government, my innocence was a value on a spreadsheet, a small one, to be weighed against many other variables. The same is true for Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan. Their innocence isn't enough. Their freedom has measurable value to our government, even for PR reasons. Whelan is an interesting contrast to Griner, not a celebrated athlete accused of drug possession, but a former Marine who deployed twice to Iraq, now accused of espionage. That tidbit alone probably gets the MAGA crowd riled up that, quote, America-hating Griner was freed instead of Whelan, who supported Trump and who's been locked up for four years. But... Whelan was also court-martialed by the Marines in 2008 for charges of larceny, dereliction of duty, and passing bad checks. In fact, that tarnished record would likely have prevented him from working as a spy, according to former CIA officials. In light of this, Whelan may be seen as a far less sympathetic figure than Griner. And on the chessboard of global politics, I can see why securing his release would be lower priority than that of a celebrated athlete. Justice is often a popularity contest. Fame. But from my perspective, Whelan is no less deserving of freedom than Griner. From a moral standpoint, their innocence is all that matters. And according to Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken, U.S. diplomats made ceaseless but ultimately futile efforts to include Whelan in the prisoner exchange for Victor Bout. Even Whelan's family understands that. The New York Times quoted Whelan's brother David, saying that the Biden administration made the right decision to bring Ms. Griner home and to make the de- can you imagine if your own fucking brother said that about you and to make that deal the the deal that was possible rather than waiting for one that wasn't going to happen. Both Whelan and Griner were supported by the Bring Our Families Home campaign, which advocates for Americans locked up abroad. According to them, there are over 64 innocent Americans being held hostage or wrongfully detained overseas. They are being held largely because they are Americans, not for any other reason. I don't have any answers to the hard political calculus of who gets justice and who doesn't when the fates of individuals get uh, enmeshed with the machinations of states. But I do know that certainly everyone who is innocent deserves freedom, both abroad and at home, and that there are conservative estimates uh, as many as 20,000 innocent people uh, are locked up in the U.S. Beyond that, even the guilty who are not a danger to society deserve freedom and mandated help to become better citizens, something more effective than prison time. I agree. We can acknowledge harsh realities of resources, time, and political capital without having to argue over the value of the life of one of our citizens. Every American locked up abroad is worthy of our advocacy, and it is cause for celebration that Brittany Griner is coming home. We should also recognize the trauma of this experience for her. I wouldn't be surprised if she felt some kind of survivor's guilt that she got freed compared to Paul Whelan, who is equally innocent. 
I don't know if she cares about him. Um, it's something all exonerees feel. I feel it. Between me and Meredith, I'm the lucky one who wasn't murdered. Compared to my fellow exonerees, many of them uh, men wrongfully imprisoned for decades. I'm lucky to have been freed after four. The last thing Brittany Griner needs as we welcome her back home is to be judged worthy or not of her freedom. Well, that's for sure. Um, and also, I mean, I can imagine the trauma from just being locked up like this and like thinking that you're going to be there for 10 years. Uh, the attitude of the innocence movement is a good mantra here. Another innocent person is free. Hallelujah. Full stop. Now on to the next one. And I think the way she ties up that um, her commentary at the end is very important because this is something I find a lot in like activist spaces. It's like if you do something good for one group, people you know, without doubt, there'll be a comment on the Instagram page saying this is like a good thing that you did, or this is something that you're working on right now that you won't want other people's assistance in. Someone will always be like ellipses, but what about this group of people? But what about this group of people? And and, and something I've mentioned before, I think that just really distracts from, you know, it's better to group to help anyone than to help no one and to respond to helping a certain group of people or a certain person with well, why not this person kind of is just like, I don't think is like a great attitude to have. And it's a way where we'll continue to achieve absolutely nothing. Um, so I'm happy Brittany, or Grin Brittany Griner is home and whatever. I don't give a shit about the trade. I honestly don't. Um, uh, okay. That's it. That's our show for today. Um, I got to run uptown. I have a fucking show and it's going to cost me more money to get there than I'm going to make doing it. But such is life. Guys, come out, see the shows that I have planned. New Year's Eve at New York Comedy Club, uh, the East 4th Street location in the East Village. Fucking banger lineup. Uh, all the lineups for New Year's Eve have now since been released at all the comedy clubs. I had a feeling I was going to have the best lineup in New York City and I officially now can confirm uh, I have the fucking best lineup in New York City. I'm so proud out of this show that I booked. It's 6 p.m. Corinne Fisher's morbid New Year's Eve fucked up jokes to end a fucked up year. It's me. It's Christina Hutchinson. It's Chloe LeBranch. It's Maddie Smith. It's Ryan Long. It's Lev Fern. I think Danny Polishchuk might drop by too if you're a fan of his. Uh, the ticket link is officially up. Get those tickets ASAP. It will sell out. You can go to CorinneFisher.com or you can go to the Linktree link in my bio on Instagram. Um, I also have dates upcoming in uh, Austin, Texas, February 10th, Houston, Texas, February 11th, uh, and Toronto, February 17th and 18th. The Houston and Austin ticket links, again, are up, uh, CorinneFisher.com and the Linktree link in my Instagram bio and in my Twitter bio. I don't think Toronto tickets are up yet, but just save the dates, February 17th and 18th at Comedy Bar. Um, that's going to be fun. I haven't been to Canada in a while. Uh, Brittany Griner is free. What good news? And if that makes you sad, I don't know what to tell you. Um, Take a deep breath. Have a great week. I love you, wackos. Bye.